fact of the matter is, wages are like thermometers. They don't set the value of the labor, they reflect the value of the labor. So arbitrarily saying, you know, we need to pay $15 an hour does not make the workers' labor automatically worth $15 an hour. Yeah, again, we're having this sort of theoretical argument that I think here's where economists get things very, very wrong, or many of them especially. In this case, human beings are not widgets. They are not just like any other product. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from, uh, Craig, you may not believe this, but it's actually sunny here in uh, Boston, Massachusetts today also. And uh, I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. And Bob, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Clio, an online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. Uh, yeah, reminder to our listeners that Clio is going to be hosting its uh, Clio Cloud Conference next week, uh, Monday and Tuesday, September 22nd and 23rd in Chicago. To learn more about this great event, go to cliocloudconference.com. I'm going to be there and hope to see you there. Great. Well, Bob, in some recent news, today we're going to focus on fast food employees as well as other workers who have been demonstrating for the purpose of raising the minimum wage. Movements like Fight for 15 aim to increase the minimum wage everywhere to $15 an hour, what they believe to be a living wage. But does every available job contribute enough to justify this increase in pay? Well, to help us explore this topic, we have two guests today. Uh, First of all, let me welcome to the show Dr. Anthony Davies. Dr. Davies is an associate professor of economics at Duquesne University and a Mercatus-affiliated senior scholar at George Mason University. His primary research interests include econometrics and public policy. He has authored over 100 op-eds in over 30 newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, the New York Daily News, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. He's a frequent lecturer on Capitol Hill and co-founder and chief analytics officer at Indie Pub Games. Welcome, uh, Dr. Davies, to the program. Thank you for having me. Bob, in addition, we have joining us today Dr. David Madland. He is the director of the American Worker Project and the managing director of the economic policy team at American Progress. He also has written extensively about the economy and American politics on a range of topics, including retirement policy, labor unions, and the minimum wage. Dr. Madland has appeared on the PBS NewsHour and CNN's Crossfire. He has been cited in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, as well as been a guest on dozens of radio talk shows across the United States. David worked for Representative George Miller from here from California and has testified before Congress and state legislatures. Welcome to the show, Dr. Madland. Pleasure to be here. And before we get started, just a little bit of background on this. The United States passed the Fair Labor Standards Act way back in 1938, uh, setting the original minimum wage uh, in this country, uh, along with the 40-hour work week, uh, overtime laws, overtime uh, 
prohibitions on child labor and uh, other workplace-related laws. That way back then, that that first national minimum wage was 25 cents an hour. Uh, it has now grown to, uh, well, maybe grown be <laughs> not being the right word. It is now up to seven dollars and 25 cents an hour, where it was last raised, I think, in 2009. Before and after the federal minimum wage was introduced, uh, many states have also enacted their own minimum wage laws. Some of those uh, are actually greater than the federal minimum wage. Some equal the federal minimum wage, and some are, I think, in three states, uh, lesser than the federal minimum wage. Uh, And, uh, of course, if a state's minimum wage is is less than the federal minimum wage, the the federal wage standard will apply in in most cases, provided the employer is is, uh, subject to the federal wage law. So, uh, Dr. Davies and, and Dr. Madeline, uh, just let's let's start with you. And well, let me put it first first to Dr. Davies. I mean, do you do you agree just with the, the premise at all that we need a, a minimum wage law? Is is there any question about the need for such a law, at, at, regardless of the dollar amount? My position is there's no need for it. Um, and and you know the argument that you'll hear is well, if it weren't for the minimum wage, employers would pay nothing at all. And, and the counter-argument to that is, is very clear. There's no law that says you have to pay more than the minimum wage, yet 99% of American workers are currently earning more than the minimum wage. So what that tells me is whatever it is that's, that's keeping the wage up above zero, it's not the minimum wage law. Okay, and David Madeline, your, your position on that? Undoubtedly, we should have the minimum wage. We need it. It should be higher. It's important because it sets both a moral standard And I think it has positive economic implications. Clearly, it matters. Otherwise, there wouldn't even be a debate about this. If if, uh, it was just purely market forces that were were setting setting wages, then, you know, the minimum wage wouldn't matter. But it really actually does. Lots of people's wages go up when you raise the minimum wage and their lives improve. You you also have government uh, subsidies being reduced. And so, yeah, of course we should raise the minimum wage. And is $15 enough? Is it too much? What What is an appropriate minimum wage? I think it depends. You know, the uh, the proposals to raise the federal minimum wage are to $10.10, and I think that's about right. Um, that would be where roughly where it was in the late 1960s when you adjust for inflation. Certainly the economy can afford uh to have people earning what we did when we were a much smaller, much smaller economy and workers were less productive. So at least we can go to that level. Then there are cities and regions where uh, the cost of living is even higher and productivity is even higher, and we can go higher up to $15 as they're doing in Seattle. Um, and the you know that's already gone into effect in a small town right near Seattle, uh, SeaTac near the airport, and the indications there are that's also working well. The businesses are still continuing with their expansion plans. Uh, the world hasn't caved in, and workers are enjoying significantly higher standards of living. Yeah, I think I would take issue with, with any level, and I, I don't know how we can say what what the right level is from a, from a legal standpoint, because the fact of the matter is wages are, wages are like thermometers. They don't set the value of the labor. They reflect the value of the labor. So arbitrarily saying, you know, we need to pay $15 an hour does not make the workers' labor automatically worth $15 an hour. 
And, and so what concerns me largely are the people who get left out. Clearly, there are people who benefit from a higher minimum wage. There's no question about that. The problem is who's hurt. The people who are hurt are the people whose labor isn't worth the minimum that we're setting. To those people, what we're effectively saying is, if you can't find a job that pays $15 an hour, you may not work at all. Well, what, what is the real ramification of that? I mean, does, does that level out over time? Uh, is that a short-term effect in your estimation? It's a combination. Um, and the combination goes something like this. The, the, there's a short-term effect in that, you know, if you say, well, if, you, if your labor's not worth $15 an hour, you can't work, you're going to get some workers who go out, they, you know, they'll, they'll get more education, what have you. They'll do something to try and boost the value of their labor. There's also a long-term component. And the long-term component are the workers who, who largely, the only way they can increase the value of their labor is through experience. Well, those people you've now permanently shut out of the, the labor force. It's, it's the catch-22 of you can't get a job without experience and you can't get experience without a job. The minimum wage is what creates that catch-22. Well, what is an appropriate living wage? I mean, at some point in time, somebody has to set a minimum somewhere, don't we? Well, the minimum is, is set by the, uh, the combination of what the employers are willing to pay and what the workers' labor is worth. It's the same reason why you don't need a minimum price for cars or a minimum price for pizza. The market will drive those prices to the appropriate level. What, what if people can't live on the amount of money that they're making? Does that mean that they need more training? Yes, and that's the good question. So this comes back to this analogy of the thermometer. If your labor isn't worth enough that you can earn a living, the answer is to do something to make that labor more valuable, be that job training or experience or education. And, and herein com comes the problem with the minimum wage. The minimum wage shuts off one of those avenues by saying you cannot get any more experience because you don't rise to this minimum level. The, so far, this argument has been really a kind of a theoretical one about somehow people being shut out of, of the labor market. But the actual evidence when you raise the minimum wage is it basically has no effect on employment. We have so you can see that in a number of different ways. You just you can also think in the past when the minimum wage was much higher, we had full employment. You also then there are lots of good studies that will compare regions that raised their minimum wage to regions next door to them that didn't see if there's employment effects and there's no employment. So basically, there's a theoretical possibility that workers could get shut out, but that's in fact not really what happens. What happens when you raise the minimum wage are sort of several things. First, you have workers having more money in their pockets. That, in turn, makes them consumers as well so they can boost demand in the economy. That creates a greater, also a greater demand for workers. Yes, when you raise the minimum wage, you also have some employers who choose, who say, you know what, I can't hire more people, but that is sort of overall compensated by the other, the boost in demand and other positive factors. Also, when you raise the minimum wage, you tend to get a sort of high skill, you have workers staying in their job longer, so they are more productive. They become more productive because they've got the, the on-the-job training. You also tend that there's some evidence, weaker, but some evidence that you get sort of more investment in training and those kinds of things that makes the workers more productive. So the overall effects are that workers are not shut out. Instead, they benefit, and so does the so do other workers whose wages go up in tandem as well. 
I don't understand how somebody who is making the minimum wage is expected to go through uh, a job training program or something like that when they're probably uh, doing everything they can just to get by. I mean, anybody who is supporting a family and earning the minimum wage uh, probably doesn't have either the, the, the capacity in terms of time or the ability to afford any kind of other job training. How do, how do they do that, Anthony? The image is that there are these, you know, single mothers working three minimum wage jobs, and and while there that is out there, that's the aberration. The usual case is that this, these are young people, frequently uh, teenagers of middle or upper middle class households that we're talking about. Uh, you know, who are going to school on the side. As for as for the evidence, uh, David is is correct that you know you'll get two two blocks of research. One saying that the minimum wage has unemployment effects. The other saying it has no uh, unemployment effects. And what happens is, if you group all labor together, you tend to not see any effect. Where you see the effect is if you break it out by education. The minimum wage has no effect on unemployment amongst college-educated uh, workers. It has a, a strong effect amongst uh, high school-educated workers and a far stronger effect amongst workers who don't have high school diplomas. So if you break them out by education, then you start to see the effect. Um, you know, as to, to minimum wage putting more dollars in workers' pockets, that's partially true. It puts more dollars in the workers' pockets who keep their jobs. The workers who lose their jobs get no dollars in their pockets. But more than that, dollars don't fall from space. They've got to come from somewhere. They come out of the pockets of the business owners, out of the pockets of the stockholders, and out of the pockets of consumers who are now paying higher prices. So th this argument that somehow this raise the minimum wage is going to create this economic activity is only looking at one half of the equation, the people who get the dollars. It's ignoring the other half, the people who have to pay it. Well, how's it break down? Well, that, that actually, can, I, can I jump in? Yes, yeah, go there? ahead. That's the real debate. Who benefits? This is that's really the debate, and I think that's. Uh, I'm glad we're sort of getting to the core. Yes, the I think the evidence suggests that uh, business owners' profits decreases slightly uh, for those who employ low wage workers, and where workers' wages go up. So that's really the crux of the matter here. It's not all of this uh, abstract theory. It's really about power and who has it and who gets and who doesn't, and. I think most people's experience, you know, that minimum wage is one of the most popular public policies there is. It's supported because people recognize that working hard, working full-time should pay a decent wage, and they've seen that the economic impacts are largely the kinds of things they want to encourage. So that's, I think, the, the baseline. Then I wanted to respond also on these, the, the idea of the studies and sort of who is a minimum wage worker. Yeah. So the typical minimum wage worker is not a teenager. 90% of minimum wage workers are over 20 years old. The average age is around 35. You've got a third that are about married. You even have quite a quite a bit up in into the the 50s uh, that are working at minimum minimum wage. It's not uh, so. The typical minimum wage worker does not look like what it, what it what it once did. And then the studies that I am talking about that show no employment effects, they do look at sort of the people you might affect, might expect to be most affected, teenagers or uh, low-wage retail sector or something like that, and they, don't, they just don't find much of an employment effect. We're going to take a short break uh, at this point in the program. We're talking with uh, Dr. Anthony Davies, uh, professor of economics at Duquesne University, and Dr. David Madlin, director of the American Worker Project. We'll be back in just a moment to continue the conversation. 
Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No. With most cloud computing providers, moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And even if you have an existing legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O dot com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams. And with us today is Dr. Anthony Davies and Dr. David Madlin, along with my co-host, Bob Ambrosi. David, I want to ask, is there... Are, are the issues any different with respect to tipped employees? The federal minimum wage for tipped employees is $2.13 an hour, where it's been, I think, since 1991. Um, I, I know California is one state that actually pays uh, restaurant workers uh, a full minimum wage uh, in that state. Given that they are tipped employees and that the tips uh, make up for, in some way, uh, the, uh, the lower minimum wage, uh, is there an equal need uh, among tipped employees for an increase in your perspective? Yeah, there's a significant need to increase the minimum wage, especially especially for tipped workers. Um, you have sort of the studies show that poverty rates are very high for workers who rely on, on tipped wages. Um, there's also, you know, the proposal, the federal proposal by Senator Harker and George Miller would raise it up, raise the tipped threshold up to 70% of the full minimum wage. And I think that's definitely a start. And other states even just don't have uh, a threshold. Everyone who gets the, gets tips gets the minimum wage. I think that's even better because you, when you, the more you rely on tips, you have people's incomes subject to huge fluctuations where they uh, don't necessarily take home much pay for, for a day or a week. Um, and that leads to great stresses in their lives. You also have, you know, all the evidence shows that you have much higher poverty rates when, the, when you have low, lower tip wages. And you also have really great problems with basic theft of uh, the equivalent of tip jars, the sort of who gets them and management often or not often, that's, that's definitely too strong, but sometimes um, uh, choosing to take them or distribute them in different ways than the, than the workers might want. Okay. And Anthony Davis, what's your position on that? Tipped workers are—it's hard, harder to get your head around because uh, you know we're, it's unclear how much of the tips are going unreported. You can rely on on some anecdotes if you ask people who are uh, who are waiters, and I don't mean who just have a, a short stint, but who who can do this or do it well enough. They do it on an ongoing basis. Um, you know what they'll they'll generally tell you is that their hourly wage is irrelevant. What's relevant is those tips, and they can add up to a tremendous uh, you know amount. You know twenty dollars an hour or, or more depending on, on what's going on. So it's harder to get your head around that because of the reporting issue. But, but I'd like to go back to an earlier point, which is this question of who benefits and who loses. One large group that we haven't mentioned yet that benefits from the increased minimum wage are unions. And they benefit for two reasons. 
One reason is many union contracts are tied either directly or indirectly to minimum wage increases. So when the minimum wage goes up, you either have an increase in the, in the union wage or you have a renegotiation of the existing contracts. Secondly, when you raise the minimum wage, you now make it more expensive for the employer to hire the non-union labor, which in turn makes the union labor, from relative perspective, more attractive. So this is one of the groups that benefits tremendously, despite the fact that they're earning more than the minimum wage. Who really does pay for an increase in the minimum wage? Is it Does it come out of the business owner's hands? Is it passed on to consumers? Who ends up bearing the cost of an increased wage? Isn't it simply just increased and then distributed around the country? Well, it depends. And there, there's three groups, and which group bears the brunt depends on how much competition there is in the various uh, sectors. Either it's going to get passed on to consumers in the form of higher prices, or it's going to get passed on to the stockholders, the owners, in the form of a lower return, or it's going to get passed on to other workers uh, in the form of layoffs or, or reduction in hours. But it's got to, the piper's got to be paid. It's going to be paid in one of those ways, which way depends on the amount of competition in those various sectors. I think that's basically right, but there's one other thing that also determines, and that's the productivity impacts. Workers, if they become more productive when they have a higher minimum wage because, for example, they might stay on their job longer, then you have a potential where the you doesn't, don't need to raise costs as much or cut into profits. Uh, and that's I think there's evidence that at least certainly some degree that happens, but you also probably have a slight increase in prices and a slight reduction in, in profits for, for the owners. But at this moment, we're at a moment where corporate profits are at record levels. Wages have been stagnant, if not declining, for a long, long time. We have productivity. Basically, workers don't get much of their share of productivity for most of the middle part of the the 20th century. From the 50s, 40s, 50s, 50s, 60s, 70s, workers' wages and their productivity moved in tandem. So as workers were helping the economy grow and grow, they got a reasonable share of that gain. That, for the past 30 years, has been really severed. Workers have become more productive. They have not really gotten any more increased wages. That has made policies like raising the minimum wage even more and more important because clearly workers just don't have the power in the market to negotiate for increased wages. Isn't it difficult to argue against minimum wage when you have corporate executives that are making $20, $25, 30000000 million, let alone not even getting into the sports industry? It's a bit of a red herring. I mean, clear, clearly it stands out, right, the, the disparity. But it's a bit of a red herring, and here's an example of how. You could take McDonald's as a case, don't, not just the CEO, but all the top management. If you took their entire compensation package and split it, you know, this is tens of millions of dollars, split it amongst all of McDonald's minimum wage workers. Each worker would see a raise of about a penny an hour. So in in terms of, of the magnitude of the numbers, if you look at the number unto itself, it looks large. But if you compare it to what we're currently, uh, the total amount we're currently paying the minimum wage workers, it ends up to be just a drop in the bucket. You made an argument earlier that it's based upon the return that the individual provides. Can you seriously say that a corporate executive makes $25 million and that's a valuable payment? Or is that just largesse? Yeah, see, that's a good question. I can't, but I'm not the one that needs to, to make that judgment. The person who needs to make that judgment is the person who's actually paying him, and that's the stockholders. 
and the stockholders have determined that at least in you know McDonald's case, the CEO is worth that. Are they right? Are they wrong? I don't know, but it's their money that they're using to pay the guy. So I would imagine they've thought about it more than I have. Well, can I jump in there on that? I think sure. this really gets to the heart of the matter about the difference between sort of theoretical economics that where in theoretical economics, everyone is paid their sort of marginal productivity and that whatever you, uh, your value is, is what you earn. But that's not the way the world works. There's lots of things that determine why you're paid. Certainly it's part of the story about how much value you bring, but it's not the only, there's power clearly matters. So do social norms matter. And so do laws like the minimum wage. And that's why the reality is it's a good policy. It's, it's good on moral grounds and economic grounds. And uh, when you try to have these sort of theoretical uh, ideas, trying to defend CEO pay, as you noticed, it was just, it was indefensible. There was no way to do it. That's because the world doesn't work the way their model, the economist models think they should. You know, we've had CEO pay used to be in the 70s around 20 or 30 times what the uh, typical worker got. Now it's 300 times. Have the CEOs really gotten that much more productive? I think it's pretty hard to defend that they have. Have workers at the same time gotten no more productive because their pay has gone going nowhere? I don't think so. One of the questions we want to ask is, is the impact of a potential minimum wage uh, decrease uh, uh, on the purchasing power of retirees living on fixed incomes. Is there a correlation there, uh, David? I'll ask you that question first. Well, this gets back to, you know, how does the minimum wage get paid? And uh, some of it, I think, does uh, go to increased costs. And the, But the evidence is that it's really pretty small. I think the studies will say that probably about a half of 1% is sort of the increased cost in for a minimum wage of sort of a typical magnitude increase. Um, and it's mostly born in sort of food, but it's written and that has really relatively even less of an impact on the overall inflation level. So yes, those who people who are dependent upon a, a fixed income might see some part of their basket of goods go up by a very small uh, amount. I think, you know, there was one study from UC Berkeley that was talking about sort of an extra dime a day, um, to raise wages and put, uh, you know, for millions of workers have millions more dollars in their pockets. So other other people could pay about a dime more day. So um, to me, that's a, a reasonable trade-off and not particularly an onus, uh, horrible burden on uh, people. Anthony, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, we're, we're missing one point here. Uh, you know, so, so you raise the minimum wage, of course, you know, you're going to see some price uh, increase, and that hits the, the, the people in the fixed income. But to go back to the, to the corporate thing, when we talk about profits, we have in the back of our heads, you know, the CEOs make the millions of dollars, and, oh, the corporation profits go to him. The corporation profits go to the stockholders, who largely are these retirees who put their money into, into a portfolio, into stocks, or into bonds, and they're part of what they're living off of is the return from that. So when we raise the minimum wage, and, it, and in turn it reduces corporate profits, this also hits the fixed income retirees in the pocketbook, not through what they have to pay at the, at the checkout line, but the return that they get on their savings. Hold on. If we're going to go that sort of indirect, then I think we want to also talk about Social Security, which is actually what most retirees depend upon is the vast majority of their earnings. And 
And if you were able to increase the earnings of most workers or a significant chunk of workers, that would clearly be good for the future strength of Social Security because you would have more money going in um, because of the progressive, progressive benefit formula. And so um, I think you would have to at least factor that in to, to think about how sort of this is going to affect seniors. You said at one point in time that you know reducing uh, thirty and forty million dollars salaries to distribute those among McDonald's employees would raise the minimum wage uh, a penny. Yet, on the other hand, you say that raising the minimum wage would cost corporate profits. Is it realistic to expect that there's anything more than a penny or two that it would affect corporate profits? Yeah, well, this is the question. Um, you know, how how much of an effect are you going to have on corporate profits? And, and when, when you hit that question, it's not just a question of how much you, you are impacting this corporation, but how much you're impacting this corporation versus another. For example, um, if, if McDonald's relies heavily on minimum wage labor, and you know, there's some other firm that, that does not rely heavily on minimum wage labor, then what you have done is you put McDonald's at a comparative disadvantage to this other firm. So the other firm is now benefiting relative to McDonald's in that even if the, profit, the profitability we're talking about is small, it's, it's now, you've now encouraged stockholders to, to move out of McDonald's into this other place. Uh, th- this is, these are the kind of effects that you're going to see from this. We are uh, just about at the end of our time for this program today. And before we uh, do close up the show, I wanted to give uh, each of our guests an opportunity to uh, share their final thoughts on this um, and uh, also to let our listeners know how they could follow up with them. So, uh, Anthony Davis, let me start with you. So, currently, if, if you look at the, at the turnover, about 50% of workers who enter the job market at the minimum wage, within one year, 50% of them are earning more. Within five years, 99% of minimum wage workers are earning more than the minimum wage. So, so this suggests that the minimum wage job is just a, it's a, it's a first step. It's a stepping stone onto to higher and higher earnings. If, if we're looking to address poverty, and I think that's what we're really talking about here, there, there are ways to address poverty. Minimum wage is not it. You're, you're using a sledgehammer to kill a fly, and you're going to break a lot of stuff in, in the process of doing this. The right way to, to, to address poverty is to address the poor people, mm-hmm. not to take away the jobs that they use as a first step up the, corp, up the career ladder. Thanks. And if our listeners want to follow up with you, what's the best, best way to do that? You can find me at anthonydavies.org. And Dr. Madlin, your final thoughts and your contact information? Sure. Thanks very much for having me and giving me the opportunity. Yeah, it's clearly time to raise the minimum wage. Our economy is working only for those at the very top. It needs to work for everyone. Uh, Raising the minimum wage is uh, a smart policy to do that. It's clearly a, a moral statement about the value of work and ensuring that people are rewarded for their hard work. Second, it's good for the economy. It's good for the sort of individual workers who are helped. You know, millions of people will be lifted out of poverty by this kind of policy. Um, but you also have uh, broader effects on demand that I think are really important, especially now when a central problem with our economy is that workers just don't have enough money in, our, in their pockets, and that's holding the recovery back because businesses are reluctant to invest without enough consumers. And the last is I think you have uh, – it's a good statement from taxpayers. Right now, taxpayers subsidize low-wage employment with things like food stamps, Medicaid, et cetera. We can start to reduce the amount that taxpayers have to pay for low-wage employment by raising the minimum wage. So clearly, this is a good thing for most everyone involved. Clearly, there'll be some 
losers, but if we shave off corporate profits a little bit, that doesn't seem to be the the, the most harmful thing right now. Um, so clearly, to me, uh, raising minimum wage is uh, one of the better policies we can start thinking about right now. Uh, and if people want to get in touch with me, I'm at AmericanProgress.org. Um, be happy to be in touch. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Bob, we've now come to the point in the show where we have 30 seconds to share our closing thought before we get cut off by the buzzer. So here you go. Well, I, as you might imagine, Craig, I'm strongly in favor of raising the minimum wage. I mean, to me, this is almost a moral imperative. I, I think the uh, minimum wage is just unconscionably low. It's it's extremely difficult for anybody to get by on that. Uh, my my own state of, of Massachusetts, uh, uh, where I live, uh, I'm glad to say recently uh, enacted a law that's going to uh, increase the uh, state minimum wage to uh, $11 an hour by 2017. I know other states are doing this, uh, and uh, President Obama has been urging states to take action on this, uh, and I hope states will follow suit. Greg? Well, I understand the economic impact of this, and there is a significant one if there is one. But at some point in time, we have to put economy aside and deal with the social impact of what is happening. I am seeing significantly more violence in the in our society. We're seeing, a, I think, a, a class war in a way between the very wealthy and the very poor. Uh, and it's manifesting itself on our streets from time to time. And I think it's going to get worse and worse and worse if we don't address it. And I think the minimum wage is one way to address it. Well, that's it. We've both been cut off by the buzzer. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.